Hello and welcome everyone. Thanks for joining me again. I'm David Widmark, co-founder of Ag Economic Insights, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest this week, Randy Dickhut. Randy is the Senior Vice President of Real Estate Operations with Farmers National Company. Uh, he's in the Omaha area. So Randy, thanks so much first for agreeing to jump on today, but also sharing some insights. Glad to, David. Look forward to it. I always look forward to catching up with you. It seems like we see each other once or twice a year at, at events, and I'm always following your work. And I came across something the other day that caught my attention and a lot of conversations around higher farmland values. But I mean, hearing this sort of narrative about the activity of farmland sales has been up. So I'll let you kind of share a little bit about what you've observed about the activity behind all the farmland sales and transactions going on. Sure, David. You know, if we start back at the last peak of land prices in 2013-14, you know, there were more land sales happening at that point, which makes sense. And then as the land prices dropped some and plateaued, there was less for sale on the market. Everybody kind of pulled back from selling, watching what it was going to do. Buyers weren't quite as aggressive. So the supply was lower, but the demand was still strong enough that it plateaued those prices, I think. But then as we uh, got into 2021, start of the year, it was going along about that same pace with you know slower number of sales. But as the year went along, commodity prices picked up, the realization that producers received a lot more uh, government price you know, payments and support, improved the income, looked better, got into the fall, yields looked better, and commodity prices were going up and land prices were following that too. And we started to see uh, kind of as the summer went along, more people calling us talking about thinking of selling their land. The higher prices definitely pulled out. So sellers are the, you know, the estates, the trust, uh, recent inheritors, or the, the family group that's owned that, inherited that farm sometime recently. Those are the main sellers. And when they saw the higher prices, they started to think about selling. And so that really kicked in last fall, that fall land sales season. And that coupled with the January to March sales season or traditional timeframes when land trades hands and a good share of it, we saw our number of auctions we held in that six month period almost double. We saw the number of acres that we sold more than double and the dollar volume, which makes sense, was up about 130% compared to the same, you know, six months of the previous four years. So there's a lot more activity, some more sales and those prices, the, the demand was good and the prices kept going up. So I always like to think of this analogy that if you could only have one piece of information, right, in the future, it's like, oh, if you would have told me that all this land was going on, like we went back in time six months and you said, David, we're going to sell twice as much land as normal. I think, oh my gosh, that's going to be a headwind for, you know, real estate markets, farmland values, because that seems like a lot of supply on the market. But, you know, we have two of these things going on now. We have high supply, high prices, and just a lot of demand apparently out there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a very interesting time. And excuse me for my spouse going through <laughs> and tell I'm at home today, <laughs> like we all do sometimes. But it's a very interesting time. You know, we hear about these extreme $26,000 sales and stuff. But from last fall 
Uh, we'll say central eastern Illinois, you know, $16,000 range, give or take, was a good price. Uh, this February, we sold some eastern Illinois land that sold for $19,000 to $20,500. Sold some central Illinois later in March, some tracks for $21,500. Top called a good cropland. Western Indiana, we had a sale auction during the uh, that time frame sold for $16,600 per acre. And so as I look at that, I don't have, you know, the statistics and analysis that you do, but as I look at it, that's about a 20% jump in both places for the first three months of this year compared to what we were seeing, you know, late summer, last fall. And yeah, the demand's been there from farmers buying, you know, as they see the commodity prices, despite the rising, you know, uh, input costs. That puts a question mark in there, but you're seeing $7 corn, $8 corn, and they outlook that this may continue more than just this season for various reasons. And again, I'll let you analyze that far more than I will. I think that's kind of the mood. And then you have some in there, individuals that are thinking about inflation hedge. And they're wanting to buy farmland and with everything going on. So, yeah, there's still good demand. I think it kind of, you know, this is a normal time of the year. It slows down. And, you know, I think that will all be reassessed as these situations and the unknowns and uncertainties transpire over the year. I think I hear you saying it's the demand side of the equation is farmers are in a good financial place. They're They're optimistic about commodity prices in this strong environment maybe they're not optimistic on whole but they're optimistic about you know being a little profitable and being able to to cash flow these expenses but also the non-farm part of the equation is also strong as well yeah i think so i mean uh, farmers are still predominantly the main buyers of good crop land that comes up for sale but individual investors are there too for those various reasons and stuff so you put it all together and we've got a Again, a sizable increase amount of land sold and has been for sale. It's coming off of what were some slower times. So as we all know, there's only less than 1% of the ag land in the U.S. trades in the open market in any given year. And, you know, I think we'll still be under that. So any additional adds quite a bit to the market, but the market absorbed it. I know last summer there, you know, thinking about the reason why there's so much for sale. We heard a lot about changes potentially in the capital gains or the estate side of an inheritance, especially on farmland. I know that might've been a factor six, 12 months ago. Did that continue to play out through the fall and the winter or did that issue kind of simmer down and not become as big of a factor in that decision to sell? Are you exactly right uh, that it was a factor early on. And, you know, as people think about selling, they contact us in the summer and to put it in motion to sell in that late summer, early fall timeframe. So there were definitely that increased the number of sales. Some people wanted to get ahead of that for various reasons and take care of it before they passed it to their children or whatever the reason. And those were set up. So they carried out through the fall. But as the fall went along, people talking about the next you know, the winter months to sell, you know, that went away. And I think it, you know, because it didn't happen and people were just strictly looking at, you know, the value of land and what they could get. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. 
In the AEI Premium, the Forecast Network tool, we have a question about <clears throat> Indiana farmland values and the probability of them increasing by more than 15% in 2022. And that comes out in the summer. And so last summer they were up 14%. So I, I think I heard you say earlier that there was some land that sold in Indiana that was 20% over last summer values. Can you reiterate that a little bit? Because I want to go update my forecast to have the latest insights. <laughs> and then I wanted to get an edge here. So that's why I wanted to have you on here. So I could get a really good score on that question. Yeah. You know, I don't know exactly what those that uh, 400, 600 acres, I forget what it was in Western Indiana, a good cropland might have sold a year ago for, but, you know, 16,600 is an impressive number. Indiana is a great state, good farmland, but that's a good number anywhere. And I think the jump was going from that, you know, 11, 12, 13,000. So that kind of factors in there. I know more recently I saw a sale that kind of the same general Western Indiana was over 17,000 on a private treaty sale. So, you know, that's significant. And I think the 20% is going to be right in there for good quality cropland. And, you know, some of the statistics we see and stuff averages multiple types and quality of land. So as you know, you always have to pick your data and what it is, but I think good quality cropland will hit that in Indiana. I think for this particular survey, it's going to be interesting because this summer would mark the second year of rising yeah. values. And so kind of up until this point, it's sort of been the first leg up. Now we could be seeing uh, the second leg up. So uh, I'll go dial in my forecast just a little bit <laughs> based on this. I have two more questions for you, Randy. I'm curious to hear about what you've observed and what you've heard about cash rental rates. We haven't seen a whole lot of data on that come out yet, again, because of this kind of first leg up versus the second mm-hmm. leg up. So what did you see over the winter with cash rental rates? Well, Cash rent rates and the negotiation of it is a very interesting process. It depends on when it starts and what grain prices are kind of in the outlook at the time and your input costs. So, you know, a lot of cash rent rates are negotiated early in the fall or even before harvest, especially in certain states. So, you know, the outlook was a little different than it was if you were doing it, you know, mid-February, which is you know, getting pretty late to do that for the producer and the landowner. So, you know, in general, we saw cash rent, the base cash rent go up maybe 10%, 2021 to 22, give or take on both sides of that. So not a huge amount as you kind of look back, but what has to be factored in today is that many of those cash rent leases are a flex lease or a variable cash rent lease. So instead of the traditional fixed amount for the season paid once or twice during the year, you know, there's a base rent, which is pretty much, you know, most of the base amount if you didn't have a flex. And then that flex portion based on the gross income generated that year, you know, from yield and price. And we saw on ours flex leases in Farmers National this past year, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% increase over that base cash rent. So if you had a $300 base cash rent, that extra profit that farmer's getting is now being shared some with the landowner and they got another you know, $90. So it's very significant. And so I think in these variable times, that variable cash rent lease works very well for not only the landowner, but also the 
Tana because, you know, if they make more, they're usually more willing to uh, pass some of that along. That's great to keep in mind because, as you said, when the base increases, it still has those Mm-hmm. additional payments that are possible. So it's not just the total payment. It's sort of the bottom comes up. And so everything could potentially be adjusting from there. Right, right. So the last question, uh, the hardest question for last, uh, <laughs> what are you watching over the next 12 to 18 months that maybe other folks aren't, that you think maybe others aren't watching closely enough? Well, I read your and Brant's insights for one, so they need to watch that <laughs> more closely, but no, good information. And uh, uh, I think like we're all watching commodity prices and input costs because net farm income, you know, in the end gets capitalized into that land value. And then with that, we're watching interest rates. And, you know, the question is how far, how fast will they move? And will that have an effect, a dampening effect on farmland prices, you know, initially not just because everything else and the demand for to buy land has kept that up, but maybe as it goes on up, it will, you know, you see a lot of information on that. The others, uh, you know, watching inflation, we know it's higher. Is that uh, uh, ongoing? And will that affect? Because right now we've got investors, individuals that are turning to buy farmland as an inflation hedge. Because, you know, typically a real estate, real property investments and inflation hedge. And I think especially now with agriculture uh, being in the forefront, farmland is. And then, of course, we're all watching the Ukrainian conflict from the multi-tentacles that that has from, you know, grain trade prices to inputs and fertilizer and, you know, auxiliary food shortages around the world and, you know, everything going on, how that plays out and how soon it'll have a huge impact. And I don't think soon as, you know, hopefully this war ends tomorrow, even if it did, I think the impacts are going to carry on longer because I think food security has become even a more heightened awareness for countries and, you know, trying to be self-sufficient, but if you can't, you know, getting the supplies of everything that you need when you need them and stuff, you know, shows, you know, China's buying more corn right now and stuff. So, you know, I think there's more uncertainties out there, more unknowns than most years. You know, every year farmers and producers face weather and prices and, you know, usual things. But today we've got even more going on and uncertain. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. It seems like there's even more uncertainty today than there were just two months ago when we were making our crop budgets. And I think that's the maybe the unique feature is that usually you start to get more comfortable, like, okay, the markets are settling in. This is what the Mm -hmm. South American crop looks like. Here's what we can think about for reasonable usage or trade expectations. But everything's just becoming more uncertain as we head into the growing season. So it's a little bit backwards, but I I really appreciate your insights there. Kind of the the first two points you mentioned were sort of the basics, right? Keep an eye on the profitability, how much, you know, how profitable is the crop sector, then watch those interest rates and watch how that plays together. And then, you know, you sort of load the other issues on the backside of that because they all feed through through the interest rate side of it, but also into the profitability. So Randy, it's always great to chat with you. Always look forward to our conversations and thank you so much for your time here on the podcast today. Okay. Thank you, David. And have a good one.